0: Please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. Welcome back to Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today's guest is an Emmy award-winning television writer that contributed to the success of Seinfeld, Ellen, and The New Adventures of Old Christine. He's a New York Times best-selling author, with several clever novels to his name. He is a cunning mystery writer that knows how to craft a story maze with an endless supply of literary snares and deadfalls. His irreverent humor is a part of his signature style that keeps you laughing while dodging crossbow arrows, stray bullets, and speeding cars. Stay tuned for an exchange with my friend and a wordsmith that writes like he's running out of time, Master Matt Goldman
1: that spark of electricity a skipping stone that sets you free you're captive to a mystery the curse of creativity la, 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 hey pat hazel how
0: are you i'm well pal how are you well thank you good we both made it to the land of podcasting <laughs> <laughs> it's a dream we never knew we had <laughs> no it's a very interesting medium though i will say It's a forum that allows you to record your telephone calls with your friends and then let everybody listen in. It's something that we would have been mortified as teenagers if people could hear us talking on the phone.
1: Yeah, that's why we stretched that long cord into the closet.
0: I remember that (laughs) before there were teen lines, it was just impossible to have a phone call without somebody in your family getting on the other line and saying, you go, come on, I'm talking here. You know, There was always somebody picking up the phone.
1: And now we all have our own phones and our own TVs for which to fuel our conversations.
0: Yes, but also a, that phone is also our own ankle bracelet that the police can keep track of us. Every, they know where everybody is. They know when traffic gets <laughs> sped up or slowed down, it's like, hey, there's too many people on the 405 uh, right now.
1: <laughs> I didn't know the conversation was going in this direction. Well, I would have brought my binder of conspiracy theories. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let me just ask you something as a writer. Sure. It's not a conspiracy theory, but it's kind of prevalent. Right. Is As a writer, what's your take on the new rise in banned books? On the big
1: level, it's it's a disaster. There shouldn't be any banned books. I mean, parents can make the choices for their kids, what they should read, what they shouldn't be. In early June, I went on a book tour, and every bookstore I was in had a big banned book section. Right. So that's... That's the good part. Right. That if you right. can't have it, then I want it. It draws attention to the books. It gets people talking about books. So on that level, it's actually a good thing.
0: Yeah. Well, there's also this very strange thing now with the melding of truth and fiction in, in the world, yeah. in politics, in media, that there should be another different sections of the bookstore, right? Instead of just fiction and nonfiction, we need a friction and non-friction areas or something <laughs> yeah because it seems like you don't know what to believe when you read it
1: well and now that's coming to video as we speak so you'll see someone talk online and or, you know in your computer you'll see them make a speech and you don't know if that's what they said or not the technology is that good
0: well that's true uh, what do they call that that uh, fake voicing and all of those things but even the faces like i don't know if tom cruise really plays the guitar but I see him on Instagram or I see him jumping out of a plane. I'm like, this could be any dude. (laughs) They got to turn yourself into Tom Cruise app.
1: Yeah. Well, that's just more work for us, making up fake stuff.
0: We've drifted into mystery. And you have been a mystery writer, a good one, and have six books I know that are mystery related.
1: Five are out. The sixth comes out in May.
0: Okay. I'm intrigued by mystery writing from the standpoint of how you plot it out because it's like you're writing a giant Sudoku or a, or a crossword puzzle, it still has to work in the end. It's got to go somewhere. They have to be misled to uh, enough to be intrigued.
1: I'm going to answer your question in a few short words. I do not plot it out in the novel writing world. There's people who are called plotters and people who are called pantsers, which means they go by the seat of their pants. Ah,
0: Not they don't pull the pants down of other people. They might. That's what they we might. call <laughs> pantsers in, in, in junior high.
1: <laughs> you go to your local library, you'll see a lot of tweed sport-coded people
0: pulling down other people's pants. <laughs> so you're a pantser. You're admitting it. You're openly admitting that you're a pantser. <laughs> yes. Okay.
1: <laughs> and I couldn't write that way if I didn't have so much experience writing television. Is it specifically because... We did so many episodes. I have worked on over 500 episodes of television. I wasn't the writer on all of them, but I was one of the writers. I was in the room when the story was first talked about and when the outline was developed and and the various stages of the of taking that outline to script and the different scripts and and the many drafts that happened before the actors read it and after the actors take it onto the stage. And so I eventually learned story. I'm no story genius, but when you do it that many times, you have to really try not to pay attention to learn something. And so I'm a big proponent of not outlining because I think when you have your characters up and on their feet They are speaking true to who they are, and the story will come out of that. And I think when you outline, you use that same part of your brain that makes a shopping list. Mm. And so you're trying to think through everything logically from an overview, but it often ignores some of the most important traits of your characters. So if you're watching a TV show or a movie or a play or read it in a book and somebody says... Well, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but that's because nobody can believe they're going to say it. They're totally out of character, but they've kind of been hammered into place to fit a story that was preconceived. And I believe in letting that story blossom from the inside out and then fixing it.
0: So multiple drafts is part of the game in in all of these.
1: Absolutely. And, And when you don't outline, your first draft is your outline. It just happens with characters talking, interacting with each other. You're in their heads, especially in the novel, your internal part of what they're feeling often. And so you can keep a better eye on whether they are behaving true to themselves.
0: But because you're not outlining, you're only introducing characters that come along when when you show up in a new environment? Or...
1: Well, they come along when they come along. I try to get most of my
0: writing done before noon,
1: and then the rest of the day I, I putz around. But I'm thinking. Things are stewing in there.
0: At that time, are you letting your characters just wander around your house from noon on? And, and, yeah, and they
1: never and, clean up after themselves <laughs> and I get blamed for stuff. That's the problem. Who left this pan out? Neil Shapiro left it out, but okay, I'll clean it up.
0: Right, right. The next uh, morning you've got to go around <laughs> and clean the whole joint up. Yes. I'll I'll
1: tell you this about Outlines
0: from television.
1: I worked on all those episodes of Outlines where we talk out a story in the room. It would get put up on the whiteboard, on massive whiteboards, all these words written. And then the room thinks, this is the greatest story in the world. And they give it to a writer and say, please go write this outline based on our wonderful story. And the writer goes off for a few days and writes an outline faithful to everything they talked about and other writers read it they say ah this doesn't really work so they spend a day or two trying to fix that outline and then they get it to the place where they think ah this is a great outline and then they hand it to the studio and the studio says ah we don't really think this works here are our thoughts and then you spend another day or two adjusting it same thing happens at the network when it goes to the network they have thoughts after all these people all these professionals think it's a great story. And then you finally get it to the place where everybody on board thinks we have this wonderful story. The writer goes off and writes a script that is faithful to that outline, and it sucks. Almost every single time. Right. And that should tell you that there's something that goes wrong in the outline.
0: Well, I don't think that everybody that you collaborate with, executives in various departments... Know what a story is or what makes an element of surprise. So they're not really coming at it from a story, real true story sense.
1: That's exactly right. Not only do they not come from it from a true story sense, but everybody has their own preconceptions and notions of what something should be. It's like looking at the blueprints of a house, a television script or a movie script, in that the decorator hasn't done their work the painter hasn't done their work the furnishing person's not in there the person who picks out carpet like all this stuff that gives it its feel still has to come on top of it and you're just trying to get the bones right right that's the hard part getting everybody to see the same decoration
0: and and it yeah. is interesting because people who have never written a lick in their life are saying i see this room being all in leopard skin and you go yeah that's not going to happen and it is interesting they have a job to do and i'll put i'll just talk about an executive level their job is to sell advertising, which is the business they're in. Commercials have to go between this. So they want to break here and they want to...
1: Yeah, in the olden days, that was certainly the Yeah,
0: case. N- certainly not on the... Now they're services. selling
1: subscriptions more than advertising. But same idea.
0: The agenda is different for each person. So, all right, well, let's still focus. I still want to focus on the mystery stuff because now you attend mystery conferences and that intrigues me. If, uh, number one, I don't think they should tell you where they're at or what time to be there (laughs) like the really good mystery writers will show up but well at the mystery conferences
1: there are authors there there are readers there there are booksellers there there are libraries there there's press there a lot of fans get to go see their favorite authors and we do talk craft a bit at these things but we're not Going into too much detail about into much detail about our works in progress, and but the mystery writing community. One thing I was not prepared for, and was a wonderful surprise when I moved over from television, is this super supportive atmosphere in the mystery writing community. The very top authors, the Lee Childs and Laura Lippmanns and Megan Abbotts and James Pattersons, and like the top selling authors, are quite supportive of the people coming up because there's this feeling that if one of us does well, we're all going to do well. And that's a hundred percent true in everything. If you look what the Harry Potter books did for kids lit, Mm -hmm. you know, 25 years ago or whenever that was, but it's certainly not true in the TV Mm -hmm. writing world where we're one giant happy family. And I hear in other genres like romance, they're a bunch of backstabbers. That's the word on the street.
0: Right. <laughs> so if you're thinking of writing a romance. This is where romance and mystery <laughs> meet, is the who did the backstabbing? Yes.
1: <laughs> so it's these mystery conferences. Almost every author I know loves going to them. We'll go to one or two a year because, A, it's a bunch of introverts who get to see each other. And get out of their out of their office, and and then you get to you get to meet a lot of readers and and booksellers and people like that. It's a nice community.
0: So when you mention introvert, I was thinking to ask you this question: Introverted writers, uh, did do they know that a pandemic happened?
1: <laughs> they do. We do, we do, because we weren't allowed to go out like everybody else. But introversion often gets confused with being shy or awkward. And it's really just a way of how you recharge yourself. So when I'm alone is when I charge myself up. And one of the reasons for all the great things, great experiences I had as a television writer, being around really smart people, very funny people, seeing things come to life on the stage, have all your friends see your name on TV being in a room full of people for 12 hours a day for 5 or 6 days a week was exhausting to me just exhausting so i'm much uh happier as a novelist for that reason alone
0: right and i remember yeah. when i met you you were already a writer but you had dabbled in stand up comedy so is that difficult as an introvert i mean to, take me back to the first time you went on stage as a stand up and converted your sense of humor from paper to the stage.
1: I was so nervous. I was 21 years old. I can barely remember it. But you know, there are a ton of stand-ups who are introverts and a ton of actors who are and musicians as well. That doesn't mean they can't perform. They actually perform quite well, but then they're not if you go out to dinner with them after the show, they're not like that like they were on stage. It's a it's a quieter, more thoughtful process not everybody's that way there are big extroverts who are comedians but way more way more in my experience do you do you come across introverts at least as performers
0: yeah but I, i recall when we were first introduced to each other somewhere early in our both arriving in los angeles of us going to a lunch at a place called the elegant tortilla It was in Studio City, and we just went to lunch. It was a Mexican restaurant joint with a salad bar and stuff, and we saw on the table a little tabletop card that said, Comedy Show Tonight. Yeah. And we looked at each other, and we're like, where could they possibly have a comedy show in here? There was, like, no stage, no anything, and when we asked the waiter, he told us, oh, well, we roll the salad bar over there, and we do this, and we set up a microphone, and he said... Yeah, you guys should come. I'm the booker. Right. The waiter was the guy who booked and that's when we said, "Oh, we we just moved to town. We're comedians." And he says, "Do you want to be on Do you want to be on the show?" Right. So we went from being patrons on the lunch thing to coming over and do you remember that specific note? Yes, what
1: I remember mostly about the elegant tortilla is us saying things like, "Well, maybe if we do that do well at the elegant tortilla, we'll get moved up to the sophisticated burrito." Right. That that's right. Our, <laughs> and that's and I I, I love
0: those <laughs> kinds of jokes, which are only good in the moment. <laughs> yes. But they they last a lifetime with the people you <laughs> were with. You know, yes. you can't really regale that, but that that joke stands out to me too as as worth the humiliation of coming out there and working over the salad bar.
1: Yeah, no, that, I mean, that was in the mid to late 1980s when stand-up was king. Stand-up was just blowing up. Every place had a stand-up night and cable TV hadn't caught up with it yet. So you had to go out to see it for the most part. There was The Tonight Show and there was Johnny Carson and there was uh, Arsenio and then Joan Rivers had her own show. There were some places, but it's not like it is today when there's so many platforms and they all have stand up specials.
0: Yeah, the Netflix uh, library is astounding if you want to yeah. find new voices that have honed a material to a point where you get that experience. But back then it's really also funny how the job was like the ultimate internship which was you get to you go right on stage. Like you you want to do it? Okay, I'll put you on a list. You can go up third around the country, there were stand-up opportunities and you had to get to the place and then they'd go, okay. And you lived or died on that night on whether or not you were funny.
1: Yeah. I always felt sorry for the comedians who started in New York or Los Angeles because there's it's like starting in the major leagues or going off the ski jump at the Olympics first. It's, it, it's hard. Uh, at least it was back then. I know there are more... Coffee shop type alternative venues now, but I came up in Minneapolis, and that was a great place to fail. Which you know, when you're an early, when you're a young stand up, you fail almost all the time, and you just slowly learn and, and and fail less as you go.
0: I remember seeing you. There was a the Guthrie had a backstage theater, which was like their smaller space where they would do stand up. And I remember wandering behind the curtains and listening to two standups argue over a premise that one had or the other. They were one said to the other, "You stole my Jay Leno joke," and right <laughs> that he had stolen from Jay Leno. <laughs> right. So that, that that was sort of a way of policing, you know, who went on before and after you. But but that was where you met Louis Anderson, and Louis had you as an opening act, and. Subsequently, you wrote on other things with him and for him?
1: Yeah. I met a ton of people when I opened for them in Minneapolis. Dana Carvey, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, which turned out to be a huge personal and professional connection for me, and uh, Roseanne Barr, a whole lot of people,
0: yeah. And that's the interesting thing about stand-up. While it is something that you're a journeyman to try to do it yourself, the fraternity of it... When we started, we were meeting everybody in a few years period, backstage in clubs and green rooms and places that that they ultimately needed people to be lieutenants on their show or mechanics in their shop. And many of the things once a network taps on to somebody and says, we're going to make a show around you and your character. They suddenly need quite a few support folks that have, that can create content in the voice of their character.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, what so much of this business is, is if you hang around long enough, you will get a lucky break. But it's your job to do the hard work so that when that lucky break comes along, you're prepared. Because if you get that lucky break and you stink, you may not get another one.
0: Yeah. Steve Higgins just said that he tells his kids all the time, you cannot run a marathon tomorrow. You have to be prepared for it. So yes, you do need to have a toolkit that you're always working on your craft. So when somebody looks over and says, is there anybody around here that can do this? You can go, I can do that.
1: Yeah, I had a couple of things going for me. One, I could type. So so, like like when Jerry Seinfeld had a stand-up special that he wrote with Joe Hodgson, they asked me to come over and type it. Right. But... uh, Uh, that was probably the most valuable class I took in high school. But the other thing was that when I was trying to be a writer, my day job was at night, which was doing stand up. You know, we'd go, it was in the day where you'd go get $25 here or $50 there for a spot. And if you lived in a crappy apartment, which I did, you could, you could make rent every month. And, and then during the day, you know, this is before TiVo. So there were VHS tapes. I would tape sitcoms mm. and then during the day I would go and I would watch them back and pause them and rewind and I would deconstruct what they were doing. I would graph the stories. Mm. I would say, this is how much time they spent on the A story. This is how much time they spent on the B story. This is how things resolved. And and But that's the kind of work I think anyone who's interested in in something should do, whether it's, acting or writing or painting or whatever it is. You just have to put in that kind of time and hopefully it doesn't feel like work. Hopefully it's just, you're interested. And, and so you want to learn.
0: Yeah. It's funny. There was a surreal moment in LA. You, by the way, were always just a little bit of a front runner with me where that you were the first one to be engaged and the first one to be married and the first one to have kids. And the first one to get divorced. Exactly. (laughs) And the first one to be remarried. So all I do is I look at you and I go, oh, that's what's coming for me. No. Right. But you got your first one of your early TV writing jobs. And why I say it was surreal is that you were working with Larry Hovis, who was from Hogan's Heroes. And what was his character's name? Carter. Carter. Okay. So I loved Hogan's Heroes as a kid. And I watched this show after school and now I'm confused. I'm in LA, I come over to your office, and I now meet Carter, he's not. He's no longer in the prison camp. But on right. that particular day, General Bull Carter was there, the actor yeah. who played that part, and he was wearing jean pants and a jean vest, and he looked a little out of place, not in an SS uniform. Right. <laughs> and I couldn't believe these two guys were friends. Like, I was so confused.
1: Yeah, I, I think I was 24 years old and I was hired to punch up the banter for a game show pilot. And then I brought you in cuz I said, "Do you have room for another person?" And, "Yeah, bring him over." And so you came over and
0: It was really funny. When when you're in LA, you do forget that you're a kid grows up watching Gilligan's Island and then you see, uh, you know, Tina Louise who played Ginger wandering around in the supermarket. Right? So it takes you a second to readjust.
1: It's a big adjustment, especially for someone from the Midwest, because that world just seems like a dreamland, like it's not real. And so when you first go there, it, it is a bit shocking and inspiring. Meeting Johnny Carson in the backstage of The Tonight Show was. One of my great thrills, and an equal thrill, was waiting for Sears to open at nine thirty in the morning, so I could go buy my three-year-old daughter a bicycle for her birthday, and the one other person waiting there was Eddie Haskell as a grown man. Uh, You know, (laughs) from from Leave It to Beaver, right? From Leave It to Beaver, uh, which was—I mean, I wasn't even a kid when that show was on. I saw it in reruns, so it's great fun out there and, and it's the major leagues. You see, you see the best doing their job.
0: Yeah. But isn't it interesting now in retrospect that what you're doing in your novel writing, which I knew all along that you wanted to write books, Mm -hmm. but LA is not a big, uh, the agents there, everybody is, they're not really big book writing supporters. No, they're not. Which is strange to me. I mean, that should be anywhere, but they are really concerned with that television screen and filling that programming and getting all eyes on a Super Bowl commercial.
1: They have their jobs and their agendas, and that's why when I wrote my first novel, Gone to Dust, I didn't tell them about it. And not only did I not tell them about it, but when I was finished, I didn't show it to them. I blind queried agents, book agents in New York, because I thought that they're doing their job, they're going to they're gonna see my manuscript as intellectual property from which maybe they could make a television show or movie, because that's what they do. And if that preceded the publication of the novel, everything would have been messed up for what I wanted. Mm-hmm. I wanted the book to just come out and be what it was.
0: Now, you've been in the publishing world quite a bit uh, over the years now, but what's the power of having the New York Times best-selling credit? I mean, it feels like now you can't say your name without saying that. Yeah, you know, it's great. I
1: think in a world where there's so much self-publishing, which I'm not knocking or anything, but it's, uh, and, and some authors have done, just beautifully well, starting as self-published authors, and continue to to as self-published authors. It just it's something. It's just a little bit of credibility. Sure. New York Times What's
0: author. what's the threshold? Is it a, is it a monetary amount that makes it best selling, or is it a, a certain amount of books? Or
1: I, it's units. I think, yeah. and there's only certain places that report it. So, to be a best selling a New York Times best selling author does not mean you're the best selling author. In the universe at that moment, it it. But it's it's one of many ways to tell how well your book sure. is doing.
0: Yeah, it's different than being a New York Times delivery boy author. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes, really? delivered the New York Times. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, I wrote a book. That's <laughs> right. you know. But that's kind of what publicist's is game, to me, it always cracks me up, that a publicist is always trying to find a tricky way to make something sound better. So yes. Somebody said to me about a, an act, they said, this guy's great, he's had command performances. And I go, command performances? Like the queen asked him to do a show? Right. And they go, no, you know, he was asked back. Right. Like, oh, no, that's not a command performance <laughs> to return to a venue, right?
1: Yes, everyone's looking for their little toehold.
0: Yeah, well, I, I I sort of joked earlier about whether you felt a pandemic or not because I assumed that you w- could work and write through that on your next project.
1: And I did, and I will. I I feel bad saying it, but I think someone like me was affected the least uh, negatively by the pandemic.
0: True, because but- I. Yeah. But the point is this, you had a different blow to you when there was a writer strike in Los Angeles, where you were a television writer and then you were told not to write. That was, that was your pandemic time. I,
1: I lived through two strikes. They were both very difficult, about 87 and 2008, I believe. And that was really hard when your whole job and your focus and you're working, you're not a wannabe writer. You're a working writer and you have to stop what you're doing. And and rightfully so, I think. I mean, I think uh, a lot of what, well, I know what writers enjoy today as far as their health care and their pension is because of other writers who've made that brave step to go on
0: strike. That to me is one of the very good things about having unions, right? There yeah. there are many complicated things about having unions, but certainly the idea of having specific rights for for health and opportunity yeah. and so forth are are a critical reason to to join together. You have a new book coming out in May. And it is done, yes. So I'm intrigued by the time from when you deliver a finished book to right. in the publishing world, is it six months later or 12 months later that this book then makes it to the shelf?
1: It is 17 months later.
0: Wow, 17 yeah. months later.
1: Or between 15 and 17 months, yes. Yeah. And I was surprised by that, too, when I got the call that my first novel was getting published. I got it in November of 2015. And they and for a first book, it was going to, yeah, it was, came out in August of 2017. So almost two years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, when people write screenplays they don't realize between financing and casting and all of those things. Sometimes it's seven to 10 years until the yeah. movie gets to the marketplace. And when you sell a thing, it's really frustrating. You want to tell people I've got a book coming out. And then like 18 months later, they're like, where's your stupid book? And you go, it's not me. It's the industry. It's yeah. Like- and very little of that
1: is the editing process. That is nothing compared for us, for a TV writer to get notes from your editor uh it seems minuscule to me and sh- and then I she's very smart and I take almost all her notes so she thinks I'm great and I think she's great which is a nice right thing to do but there are when you're with a one of the big publishers there are several sales divisions to go to different who take it out to different wholesalers and one goes to Barnes and Noble and one goes to Amazon and one goes to independent bookstores and one goes to libraries and one does large print books. And like, there's, it, it's just a process. Yeah, There's a whole marketing and distribution process.
0: Not to mention that their backlog from all the previous people that have had an 18 month wait. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think that the pandemic did bring a boatload of books their way, but production was slowed up by, Paper coming from China, and various you know, everything was kind of come to a halt, even at the warehouse they weren't letting people go in and ship the books to the to the marketplace, so really, what they now have is all this content waiting to be put out after that long delay
1: Yes, a lot of people held up, and that that's the my book that was supposed to come out in twenty twenty one we We just laid off for a year and did it uh, in twenty twenty two and uh, I did have a book come out in 2020, and that was really hard to promote. It was was,
0: was really this difficult. the
1: Carolina Moonset? 2020 was Dead West, okay. which takes place mostly in Los Angeles. And 2022 was Carolina Moonset. Right. Yeah.
0: And and Dead West was the fourth book in the Nils Shapiro series, which is yes. a mystery detective that you've created. He's a fantastic yes. character, and I guess I do wanna focus on him for a moment because when you wrote the first one, Gone to Dust, the plot was intriguing, everything was super funny, and your attention to detail, you do, not only do you do good research, but you wrote that about the Minneapolis area where you grew up, and I mean, right. you talk about the, you know, the color of the feathers on the wood duck and the whatever, and but but it makes it really amazing. Because I feel cold waiting out on the creek for this guy to buy into a building. Like, I I know the distance from here to the house. And so talk to me about the power of those details and the authenticity.
1: Well, I think the authenticity is really important. I mean, I grew up here and I have spent – now I'm back full-time in Minneapolis – and even when I wasn't, I came back often. I think that's very real. that That's very important to convey that because I don't know why, but in specific details, you write to a universal audience. And I'm not sure why that is, but it is true. The other thing is to not do too much of it and to do it at the right time. You don't want to start out a chapter with a bunch of physical description It'll bore people to death, but you slip it in, especially in tense moments. You can kind of prolong the tension by slipping some of that stuff in, and also it should read. It should be written in a voice, and I think an entertaining voice. If it sounds like it's on Wikipedia, no one's gonna, no one's gonna be interested. They're just gonna skip that part.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I like how Nils and his sidekick uh, Anders Elgard. So I like how they make humor at dark times when things aren't yeah. going great, but it's a little bit like doing surgery in a mass unit. If it's anything like the television show, <laughs> right. <laughs> which is you need to do that to survive.
1: I, I, I think that's very true. And, and shows that have no humor in them. I often find less weighty and because I just don't believe them. The people aren't behaving like human beings and it's like one of the darkest shows is Breaking Bad. It's also one of the f- absolute funniest shows. And and there's always a mix of light and dark. And I think it's important to show both.
0: Yeah. Well, to full disclosure to everybody, if they haven't figured out that we're longtime friends, yes. we wrote a play together, uh, which was called Bunk Bed Brothers. It's been mentioned on this program before. But we, when we went to do it, I think we thought we were both getting away with something I remember that there was a small theater in the Minneapolis area and mm-hmm. they were looking for shows, one person shows. And Joel Hodgson had done one. Yes. And recommended that they talk to you and they recommend that they talk to me separately it's about guys that are possibly equipped to write a one person show. So we were introduced in Studio City at a, a Super Bowl party. Yes. And we both realized, oh, they asked me if I'd write one. And you said, yeah, that's funny. I'm thinking about that. They asked me if I'd write one. And I don't know if it was simultaneous, but I thought to myself, well, if I can convince this guy to write one, a two-man show together, I'll, it'll be half as much work. That was what I thought.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought too. <laughs> uh, and, and for me, it's even stupider because I was just going to headline as a stand-up for the first time. I didn't even have to write... I had about half an hour of material and I needed 20 more minutes. And I was working on a TV show and I thought, 20 more minutes of stand up? I don't have time to write that. I'm going to see if Pat wants to do a two man show together,
0: which <laughs> ended up being way more work than right. writing 20 minutes of stand up. It was way more work. And it was also, so much work. And we didn't know what we were doing either. Like we were, no. suddenly we were writing this kind of, Oddball, it wasn't even really a play. At that time, it really wasn't so much a plot. No. We chose the theme of brotherhood because you had brothers and I had brothers. And so we kind of looked back and said, okay, this is a common area. And that if we make fun of them, we can always claim that, no, that was about Matt's brothers. Oh, no, that was about... We were looking for an excuse to, to cover. But I remember that it was very episodic in the ideas, which was like, well, we played a lot of Nerf ball, so... So we had a little section where we put underwear over our pants and we shot Nerf ball shots. And there was even a moment where you left stage and I took the time to set up a whole mousetrap game and crank the thing and, you know, roll the dice and move the mice. It was really not, it wasn't what I would consider proper entertainment, but it was a very unique opportunity. And we showed up in Minneapolis with the twins in the in the world series for the first time yes. in how many years?
1: Over 22 years. Yeah, they
0: had not been. Yeah. And so there was twins fever going on. And so we didn't really even have that much attendance. But I remember arriving and we shared a hotel because, you know, it was all financially tight. And yes. The hotel, to my recollection, was full of Shriners for a parade the next day.
1: Yeah, a convention. I think there was a convention going on.
0: Yeah. So there were fezzes coming down the hall and guys on mini bikes in the parking lot and it was kind of an just like something out of a, a surreal movie and we did the first performance and and up to that point by the way we had only rehearsed together with no audience with no laughs with not knowing what we had yes which is terrible for stand up stand up it just felt like it was a big giant turd and we didn't know yeah. it until we had the audience and then it, it allowed us both to breathe a little bit. And we did not know if it was good or bad.
1: <laughs> no, we didn't. We
0: remember having kind of, it was fun, but we had this adrenaline that we survived it. And then we waited overnight because at that time, the review was coming out the next morning at daybreak. And, yes. and we needed somebody to tell us if it was good or bad. We literally couldn't tell ourselves. And we got a, a, a headline that felt like it was printed at a carnival. You know, we told them what to say. Yes, And I don't remember the exact. It was like...
1: Bursting with charm and laughter.
0: er, Bursting with charm and laughter. So we we just were stunned by it. You know, in the meantime, the twins advance further in the World Series, and by the time we're doing it on the weekend, there's like seven people in the audience watching us. (laughs) And, And I'm only telling this because for the listener, it's the unknown moment and i remember trying to convince you to do it and us not to right do it. I you're like we should just cancel like to tonight and i i don't even know yeah. where i get this but it was like i said if there's more people in the audience than in on stage you have to do it right like if it's at a two-person show yeah. that would mean one person would have to be the audience for us to cancel <laughs> but but somehow that was the recipe and and in the seven or eight people that came that night there was three people from the Omaha community playhouse, the Omaha community playhouse had representatives there and the three of them saw the show and afterwards wanted to talk to us about if you could write this into a proper play, we'd like to put it in our season, which is the strangest happenstance of, of, it is. of doing your work. Of the,
1: of, and with many with this project. Yes. Yeah. But, that, freq- but then, that frequently happens. Yeah, it frequently does. And the key thing to me about that play Bunk Bed Brothers, and really everything that came after it is that we were just like kids messing around in our garage. And anything I've ever worked on that has turned out to be good and that people like and have some legs, it all felt like that. It never felt like a bunch of professional people doing their job. We Seinfeld, because we were there in the very beginning of that felt like kids in the garage who didn't know what they were doing. And consequently, like people who thought they knew what they were doing left us alone. They're like, those idiots. They're (laughs) they're, this is going to be a disaster. Right. I think (laughs) it's stay away from it.
0: Yeah. And it's worth noting that we got our job based on the script. Bunkbed brothers was our writing sample that we sent to Castle Rock. So that messing around thing and that show for seven people that led to doing it in Omaha, (laughs) was the actual writing sample that we turned in, which was not a spec script of another sitcom. You know, there we there was a little bit of connective tissue that I had been an opening act for Jerry and he knew us from a little bit of the comedy circuit. But in the end, they wanted to see could we write a script?
1: Yeah. And that that's just a real important part of creativity is a sense of play. And I don't know if you've had a chance to see the Beatles documentary that Peter Jackson did that was on disney plus earlier in the year but it shows them in the studio and out of their play comes these great hits that we've known all these years it's it you can torture yourself to get it but it's a lot less fun and it's often the results are a lot less good
0: yeah well that's an extraordinary example too to be able to have found that footage and retrospectively See Paul McCartney searching for lyrics, going, oh, Is this any good? I don't know if this is any good. And we're all going, it's, yeah. like, it's great. You know it's <laughs> going to be. Because you just want to shake him and go, no, no, don't. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, and he
1: just pulled Get Back out of thin air. It just things like that. But that's how, in my experience, and I've been doing this 35 years, that's how it just feels like you're pulling it out of thin air, out of a sense of joy and play. E- even dark stuff. I I just think that's a real important part of the process.
0: Yeah. Well, I think exploration and curiosity, all the things that you Mm -hmm. associate with play are the things that are firing the spark plugs. When we were early writing Seinfeld, we would go into that kind of fluorescent lighting of the Renmar studio. We would sit in there and we would drum our fingers and we'd be trying to think of something. And then it would be lunchtime. And we Yeah. We would all go to lunch <laughs> and we'd be there and it would turn into conversation. I remember hearing Larry David say, I don't feel confident in tan pants. And you know, this stuff all became right. dialogue for for George or the who wins if I get the tuna sandwich, am I ordering better than you? All of that stuff yes. fueled that. And then you would come back from lunch and you write down that stuff. Yeah. And there's
1: always the hard work part of it. But especially in the beginning, you just get excited about an idea without having any idea exactly how difficult it will be to execute it. And, and you have to remember what made you excited about it in the first place because uh, it's easy to get bogged down.
0: The gestation period, the thinking period, which you said earlier, I'm thinking about it all day. You and I used to write pretty regularly. And when we did, if we got to a place where we were stuck in Studio City, we would cross the street, and we would go to the Witsit Par 3 golf course. You could play it in an hour for the most part, I think. Right. And we would always come back all revived. It was far bigger than a putt-putt golf course, and and yet you could play the course with two clubs in your hand. Yeah, and it really makes
1: people mad who have regular jobs. Like, when that is a legitimate part of the working, to go do that or – like sometimes when i'm really stuck i'll go to the my least favorite place in minnesota which is the mall of america cuz i hate it so much that it just makes me want to get back and write <laughs> but but people think i'm just screwing around and and it's hard for people in your personal life to to understand that that's part of your work process
0: yeah i think creativity and this is probably for anybody who listens to the show that is has a jones to do creative things knows that the downtime knows that the thinking time, all of that is something that you cannot be asked to be in charge of something else at that moment. Meaning the family members that don't know, or the person says, well, you're not doing anything. Why don't you wait for the cable guy? And you go, I can't wait for the cable guy because I'm thinking about this other thing. Oh, well, why don't you just uh, do the dishwasher while you're not doing anything? I'm doing something I knew appear not to be doing something. You know, there's a constant struggle of that. Well, you're not, you know, you know. I, but I can't go to the post office in the dry cleaner because that is interrupting my flow. I, I, I
1: know. I remember you telling me when we were much younger to someone you were in a relationship with, I don't remember whom, and you were kind of complaining to me, and you were saying, I told her, if I'm throwing a ball against the wall, then I'm working, and it's it's true.
0: Well, I did have a primary relationship where I was engaged, and what was interesting was we were quite opposite in terms of our work mode. She worked for National Public Radio at some point, and she was very, very specific about her. You know, she was a grammarian. Everything had to be the proper grammar, had to be proper spelling. In comedy, it's loosey-goosey. You know, there's a difference of if it's funny or not, right? There's a big difference between the gravy train and the gravy boat. If you pick the right words, it's going to be funny. And I remember that I used to send her fanciful letters and whatever with some stuff, and she would correct it with like a red pencil and send it back. And I go, well, now it's not funny. Like, (laughs) you completely (laughs) suck the charm out of this letter. Uh, But again, hard-hitting news, generally they don't have punchlines, you know, going through that, so... Yeah. Well, what is, (laughs) you've worked in a lot of mediums. So you've written a play for theater. You've written books. You've written television. I know that you've written screenplays. I don't know if you had a movie made. Is there something that you want to write that is out there that is, is in a new territory? No.
1: I really love book writing. And it would be fun to write the story for a video game sometime. I know a little bit from my own experience and a lot from my son's. There's just wonderful storytelling going on. It's to me, it's never about the medium. It's just about the work. And what I love about book writing is I can just get my vision out there. I mean, it's a lot of work. It takes a while to write a novel, but I don't feel I have to defend it when it's in its incubation stage, Mm -hmm. which I always felt like in television. And, I I think one of the great gifts to being a baby writer on Seinfeld when we were, when it was just starting, is not that it was a great credit for our careers, which it is, but more so that we got to witness Larry and Jerry stand up for their vision. Mm -hmm. Calmly, Jerry politely, Larry less so. (laughs) He wasn't allowed to go to meetings at a certain point. But... But they stood up for it, and they said, this is the boat we're building, this is what we're going to sail on, and if you don't like it, we won't go to sea, basically. But we're not going out in your crappy boat. Right. So that was a wonderful thing to see. That also led to a lot of frustration when I was off the show, because it's rare that I found out, it's rare that someone stands up for their vision, that they don't get fired, and that there's a long enough incubation stage for the thing to become a mega hit. Yeah. Which it did.
0: Well, let me let me piggyback on to sort of complete a couple of thoughts that you had there that might be helpful for people. Number one, when we went on to have our own pilot and an opportunity to write a show called American Pie that never really got going, we made six episodes right. of that. I remember a late night call to Jerry Seinfeld where he further reiterated the the captain of the ship metaphor mm-hmm. and every show that we did a table read, <laughs> literally the reading would be done. And the network would say, we're canceling this. And we would say, well, you can't cancel it. We haven't shot it yet. Like let us <laughs> work till Friday. And when it stinks, yeah. then you can't. Right. So we right. would buy time, but every time they would want to cancel it. And, and we called Jerry saying, what do we do here? And he said, be the captain of your own ship. Yes. He said, if you board someone else's ship and it goes down, you will regret it. But if yes. you sail your own ship and it goes down, you can go down with pride and you will, right. you know, which was essentially telling us to lose sleep over your own project because that's what they do want. When they hire a showrunner or a creator, they're not going to stay up and do the rewrite, or whatever. They want somebody who is willing to go all the way to the mat for the work. Yes. And the clearer you are on that vision, the better. It, it, you know, the, the gamble, everyone gambles together on that. It's like one guy's up at the da- table throwing the dice mm-hmm. and everybody else is standing around putting money on different things. And that's not your business to worry about that. It's your business to roll a seven.
1: Yeah, there's all sorts of variables that were out of control. And the big one for us on that show was all their other sitcoms took place in New York. And ours took place at a garden center in Omaha, Nebraska. Right. And and it's like, that's what that show was. We're not going to make it more metropolitan. It's just not going to happen.
0: I remember it, hearing somebody at the network saying, where can we put this? We can't put this on Thursday because we can't go New York, New York, hee-haw, New York. And I was like, it's not hee-haw. It's it, uh, There's something in common here. How about funny, 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 funny? How about four of those in a row? No, I know. You know?
1: We got the weirdest the weirdest notes on that show.
0: Yeah. Do you remember how the censors they 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 would cut <laughs> they were there for standards and practices, which would have been bad language and whatever. But for some reason, because we were Midwestern, they kept cutting any references to corn. If there was a reference to corn, somebody th- I don't remember. Okay, that. well here's what I remember. So there was some I don't even know remember what the reference was. But because they were really concerned with us being too Midwestern, they said, you know, please cut oh. this reference to corn and something. That's when I said to the writers who are working for us, anywhere you could put the word corn in, please do in the first draft. Yes. <laughs> and they go, why? And I go, because they seem to be paying attention to that, and we don't care if they cut it. Like you can say, Dad has a corn on his toe. It'll be fine. They'll yeah. they'll be focused on that. They won't focus on the story. Right, And because I, my character was building a deck in one episode and they said, could this character have to be in overalls. And it was like, okay, I'm not junior samples. I'm, I'm building a deck. (laughs) I need a place to put the screws and the hammer. Right. So I just remember, well, could it be painter's pants or, you know, it's like, what is this? What are we having this dialogue about? But we did get to make a really cool thing. And I will say another very interesting thing about the trouble we went to in that situation was all that we only had a short order of six episodes and many other shows had 22 episodes or 13 episodes mm-hmm. and they can make commitments to directors and all kinds of folks. We had alternative thinking on our side because the network said, you're not going to get any good directors. You're not going to get a good set designer. You're not going to get, because you don't, there's no studio space. And we had a line producer, Werner Wallian, who we talked to and said, well, what does a studio space take? What does it take to make a studio space? And he said, oh, right. any warehouse. It's got to be soundproofed. you got to be able to film there when the planes are flying over. And, and he looked into a place in Van Nuys that was just a big empty warehouse, and he convinced them in a real estate deal to spec it out as a studio. And we were completely off the grid. It was like, you know, being in a lifeboat with our cast yeah. and crew. Um, but because of that, nobody bothered us. And they are still shooting stuff in that sound stage today, but we found a space Yes. And then this was the really funny thing that I'm, I'm particularly proud of is that most shows shot on Wednesday or Friday because they would have like a camera rehearsal on Tuesday or Thursday. Right. And so that filled up the week for most people. And I said, why don't we shoot on Saturday, Sunday? And they go, nobody shoots on Saturday, Sunday. I go, yeah, no, I know that, which means all the directors <laughs> are available, all the cameramen are available. And right. they go, we're not doing that. We're not paying people overtime. I said, we're not paying people overtime. We're paying them for two days just like everybody else. Right it's up to them to say yes or no. And because of that, we had, I think, five different really great directors. We had the costumer from Friends and the hairdresser from something else. And, you know, we got kind of an A team of people who wanted to do a quick short order of six shows. And, and we really ended up with a lot of support. You know, I mean, re- really yeah. was, it was really interesting to solve the problem. Everything <laughs> that they gave us that was the obstacle to me became the answer to the problem.
1: Well, that's the way the creative process works in general, the, the broken shark and jaws. If there's something you can't do, or, or the fact that Seinfeld was on network TV in primetime and there were strict language requirements, and yet that's where, that's where the invention of master of your domain came from, because they couldn't say masturbation. Right. The, their creative solving problem is, is a huge part. Of, of the process and often leads when you think you can't do something you have a strict boundary or limitation that's when you find the best thing Yeah,
0: not to mention by the way the budget did not come out of the prime time budget it came out of specials and the network had this other pool of money for making Circus of the Stars or something Bob Hope, Bob Hope specials yeah. so yeah. when Rick Ludwin who was the executive at the time said well I guess we could take the money from these four specials and make a short order of four things. It also was why it didn't go on an exact time because they didn't have a time slot for it. But look at it now. I mean, it it's now in a new life on Netflix where people can see every nuance of it. Seinfeld. Yeah, Seinfeld. Seinfeld. So, yes. No, not Circus of the Stars. Right. <laughs> it was watching those kinds of solutions to problems that is, to me, as a theater producer, it's just yeah. a question of how are we going to do it? Not that right. it can't be done. It's like, well, we're gonna to have to do it differently. We're gonna to have to raise the money a different way. We're gonna to have to cast differently. Yeah, it can always be done. There was a there this is like a complete I just had a flashback to a moment because you were not an actor. You never considered yourself to be an actor. Correct. And when we were playing the brothers in Bunkbed Brothers in Omaha, Nebraska, you were of course tortured to be in my hometown with everybody that I knew. But when we would rehearse, we had a director named Carl Beck. And Carl was at the back of the small theater, and he said to you, Matt, I can't hear you. And you said, I'm not an actor. And he said, well, I can't hear you as a person either. Like, (laughs) you know, he was trying to get you to project. And I was like, oh, okay, that's good. That's a good piece of advice right there. (laughs) That was really, those were good times. And they did lead to a lot of laughs and a lot of uh, other opportunities because we, I guess, were willing to, approach it differently by the time we right. took that little play into a place in santa monica which if it sat 50 people i would be surprised but is how we got the showcase for it to become a feature film with columbia tristar having optioned the rights and written a right. couple of screenplays on that which ultimately became the thing the network said what is this thing and it was Bunkbed bed brothers again not just our sample for the seinfeld days but it was our pilot episode or essentially our pitch for what became our American pie sitcom. So all of that stems back to your first ideas, as you said, to a time when you're playing and, and incubation cannot be stressed enough for how long, how many times you can repurpose a thing and build it stronger and, and bring people on board.
1: Yeah. It's a fun process. It can be a frustrating process. It's often a messy process, and all that is okay.
0: Yeah. It, yeah. And I have to say, all the work you've done in your novel writing, I have an absolute prediction that we're going to see Neil Shapiro on the big screen. I don't know who you see playing him. Do you have Do you have a mental idea of who you would see playing this detective?
1: Yes. Well, there's a few, but they're starting to age out, and then my dream actor is starting to age in and I'll just say who the person I'm excited about aging in is, and that's Daniel Radcliffe. I think he'd be perfect.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's just, a little thing to Daniel Radcliffe's agent. Give us a call. <laughs> we'll set it up. There are, there's a, there are four movies waiting to be done, Gone to Dust, Broken Ice, The Shallows, and Dead West, and uh, this will keep him busy. He won't need that Harry Potter money. Right. After this, <laughs> Matt, what a great opportunity to catch up I think the world of you, pal I, I, Hopefully folks can not only read those books That I mentioned and get on the Nils train But also look for The Good House Coming out in May uh,
1: A Good Family
0: Yeah, they're going to live in a good house, aren't they? <laughs> okay The book is called A Good Family And the sequel will be called A Good House I think I'm pretty sure right. I Yeah <laughs> Also starring Daniel Radcliffe. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's .fun because .com is just two common, And .fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now.
1: Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage—a circus of uncertainty. You're called a
0: creativity. La 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 la. La la la. la.